You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. If we haven't met before, my name's Tom, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and we're going through a series of messages from the Bible book of Luke, which we find in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. And uh, Luke is one of the biography accounts of Jesus' life. So we get to see who Jesus was, what he said, what he did uh, in one of these books, which is Luke. And we're going to be working through this over the next, oh, a long time, many, many months. But we're going to have a break from it over the next few weeks as we have Christmas and then a couple of special Sundays in the new year. Okay, let me just recap before we get into Luke chapter 2. We've been seeing how Luke is writing this account for his friend Theophilus, who was maybe a Roman governor of some sort. That's what we uh, can glean from uh, what we read in the Bible. And Theophilus has seemingly paid Luke to go and investigate what has been going on in the Middle East. He's paid Luke to go and put together a careful investigation of the facts. And Luke has basically gone around um, interviewing people. And we can even see from this uh, account today that Luke will have gone down and sat down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably in her old age by now. She's probably about 70 or so when she's recounting this story to him. And we know that she treasured these things in her heart. She's kept These things are as clear as day to her. And Luke is asking her all kinds of questions. What was it like? How did it come to pass? So Luke's compiling this, uh, this meticulous investigation. We've seen how there's been uh, angelic visits to two families. Firstly, to Zechariah, who's married to Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin. And this angel comes to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a baby, even though you're old, even though you're basically as good as dead. That's pretty much what the Bible's saying here. They were really old, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he says, you're going to have a baby, and he's going to be called John. He's going to be a special messenger. He's going to prepare the way for Jesus, a very special uh, baby uh, to come. And then the angel comes to Mary and to Joseph as well and to tell them that they are also going to have a special baby, even though they were not married by this point. Mary's a virgin, and she says, how on earth can this be? And this is where we're going to pick up the story. So chapter 2, we're going to read the first seven verses. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Note this already. These are real people. These are real people, historical people, who Luke is inviting his readers to go and investigate. This is not kind of some made-up world here. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Again, we've heard of real people, now we're seeing real places. This is not not Narnia. This is real. uh, In the first service, I used the word Lapland, and someone reminded me Lapland is actually real. (laughs) These are real places. So Joseph took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. This is a big moment. I can imagine when when Luke was writing down uh, his memoirs, having uh, interviewed Mary, as he starts to write down his gospel of Luke, that his hand's trembling at this point. He's thinking, wow, this is the big moment. I get to write about Jesus coming into the world, to a world wrecked by sin, God sends not some ambassador in a bulletproof vest for a photo opportunity. No, he sends his one and only son. He sends the eternal, uncreated, always having existed son 
into the world. The one who was uncreated and eternal came into nature, came into creation, descended into his own universe. The baby in the manger is the always existing son of God. There was never a moment where he did not exist and now he's coming into the flesh. That's what incarnation means, coming into the flesh. To be honest, it sounds a bit too unbelievable to have been made up. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That the uncreated one is now coming and is, is in the form of a baby. It sounds too ridiculous to have been made up, which encourages me that it's true. And this is such an unexpected way for the Son of God to come in to the universe, to make his appearance. He could have been born in Caesar's palace, in the spacious grounds of Caesar's palace. He could have been born to much fanfare, where people would have made a big fuss about it. There could have been all kinds of top health professionals there to deliver him. The messengers of Caesar could have gone to the far reaches of the Roman Empire to herald that this baby had been born. Instead, he's born in a crowded house to a teenage mum in a crowded city where there's not even an appropriate place to lay down his head other than a manger where the animals would have taken their food from. Yes, you heard me correctly. Jesus likely was not born in a stable. There's no mention of a stable in these accounts of Jesus' birth. He was likely not born in a stable. I don't want this to be the focus of the message, but we read so much into the, the, the text that's not there. I'm ruining everyone's childhood now, aren't I? But there's no mention of a stable. There's no mention of inns either. The word that has sometimes been translated as an inn is more likely a guest room or a spare room. Joseph and Mary were going home for Christmas, as it were. They were going to Bethlehem where they would have had family. They would have stayed with family. It's like it would be totally weird for them to not have found family to stay with. And the ladies in Joseph's family would have helped deliver Jesus. Joseph wouldn't have done it. Have you ever wondered who delivered Jesus if it was just Mary and Joseph in a stable? No, the ladies in Joseph's family would have delivered Jesus. Joseph wouldn't have had a clue what to do. He's a carpenter. There's nothing in common between carpentry and midwifery. He would have been completely clueless as to what to do. I would be completely clueless as to what to do. And I've had three children. I've seen them be born before me. And I still wouldn't have a clue. I've got friends in this church who are pregnant right now. And if I happen to get stuck with you and you're about to give birth and it's just me and you and there's no phone signal, I am of no help to you at all. I can pray. I can do that quite well. I can pray. I'm a social worker by my background. I can fill in a form for you. I can register your child. I can do that really, really well. I can probably ask you, How's it? how are you feeling? But I can't help you. This is not my area of expertise. This would not have been Joseph's area of expertise. He was a carpenter. So they've arrived late to Bethlehem. The guest room of their family is taken up already. So they're literally having to bunk on the floor of the house where the animals would be kept. I was with some people yesterday who um, spent many years in the Middle East, and it's still the case today that mostly people would, would live on the, the top floor of their house, and on the, the bottom floor of their house, there would be the place where the animals were kept. It's so full in their house that they're having to sleep on the floor. It's a bit like Christmas, isn't it? When you get the airbeds out, someone's sleeping under the table, someone's sleeping in the corridor, you're, you're cramming everyone into the house for this special time. Everyone's come together for this census. And Mary and Joseph are on the ground floor and Jesus is born where the animals are sleeping. It's all very normal in some respects. It doesn't seem very befitting of the Son of God. Jesus does things again and again, as we're going to see in this book of Luke, that we think deity really ought not to do. We know perfectly well that a king belongs on a throne, not in an animal's feeding trough. But 
He doesn't seem to care much about protocol. The one on high became low. The creator became a creature. The word became speechless. The powerful one became a helpless fetus. The one that the high priests trembled to approach in the temple. The one who they would have to go through all kinds of cleansing rituals and make sacrifices just to even go before was now approachable to filthy shepherds. He came to live a human existence. And just like all the other boys of his age, he was circumcised on the eighth day, given his formal name. This is kind of undramatic. It's, yes, it makes for a great nativity play at Christmas time, but he just came in a normal way in many regards. He came to walk in our shoes. What comes next, though, is far from undramatic. Let's read on. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him with this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angel had returned to heaven... The shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel, even before he was conceived. Now we're seeing what this is all about. Now we're seeing that in no way is this a normal child. In no way is this a normal child. The angel gives it away when he speaks to the shepherd in the fields. He says, I bring good news of great joy for all people. The, the angel is painting an amazing picture for them. He's, he's announcing good news that the darkness that has covered the earth for thousands of years is going to be starting to be rolled back. That the darkness, the depression, the misery was about to be rolled away. The event of this child being born is a massive step in God bringing salvation to the world. It's not good news, guys. We've discovered 10 steps by which if you just follow them, you can get right with God. It's not good news, guys. We found seven ways to be a better you. No, it's good news. A very special person has arrived. Our good news at Hope Church is not 10 steps to freedom in whatever. It's not seven steps to being a better person and living your best life now. No, it's a person. Our good news is that Jesus Christ has come into the world and he is the savior of the world, as we're going to see in just a moment. It's a person. Jesus is the good news. 
the way of pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open. This was the news that would bring great joy, sincere joy, deep, deep joy. I was walking around uh, an estate last week with a friend of mine, and uh, we were just walking and talking and praying. And as we were just walking along the road, we would just talk and uh, stop and talk to people as we went along uh, our way. And we got the opportunity to share about Jesus with some people. We got to pray with some people. And we, um, we chatted to two young guys who were 14 and 16 outside of a pawnbroker's. And they had a, a massive bulldog that uh, was very well trained because as soon as I went up and spoke to them, uh, this bulldog went for me and headbutted me and I was sore for quite some time afterwards. And uh, we just got chatting to them and I said, hey guys, do you believe in God? And the oldest guy said to me, no, I don't believe in God. There's more evidence for aliens existing than there is for the existence of God. And I just listened. Sometimes that's what we've got to do, friends. We've just got to listen. And I just listened and let him talk through his views on aliens and so on. It wasn't highbrow philosophical debate, I can tell you that. And, uh, and I just listened and listened and just took in what he was saying. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe God exists. He's changed my life. What would it take for you to believe that God exists? And he said to me, if I prayed to him that I would have the money to get out of this estate, then I would believe that he exists. And we talked some more. And it became quite clear to me that both these guys were living in fear. The reason they had a bulldog with them was for their own protection. And uh, all they really wanted to do was to get out of that estate. They were very fearful for their lives. One of them had been involved in gang violence, and they just wanted out. So we carried on chatting. We offered to pray with them. We offered that we would pray for them. And uh, then it became apparent that this bulldog was probably getting quite hungry. So we just thought we we're going to move on from this one. But I, had, we, had we talked more, and we gave them our numbers, so we may well still do that. But had we talked more, I wish that I could have taken them by the shoulders and shaken them and said, listen, even if you get out of this estate into a nicer neighborhood, it's not going to bring you the joy that you think it will. It's not going to bring you the deep joy that you think that it will. We are all longing for joy. We're all longing for deep joy, aren't we? We're, we're all, all of us, we're wired. We're kind of all of us searching after something that's really going to satisfy, that's really going to bring us joy, but it's not going to be a better house or a better neighborhood. It's not going to be a better job prospects. It's not going to be a, a, a good sex life. It's not going to be the perfect family. It's not going to be the perfect Christmas. It's not going to be a better figure. These things aren't going to bring us joy. They're fleeting. They're things that might bring us some happiness for a moment, but deep joy can only be found in a person, and that is Jesus Christ. Deep joy, knowing him, that's how we know deep joy, is knowing him. He's the promised land. He's the prize. This is good news of great joy, and that great joy is found in knowing him. And it's good news of great joy for all people, to everyone. The knowledge of God would no longer be confined to this small part of the world. God had promised to Abraham, who was uh, one of Jesus' um, ancestors, he had promised to Abraham that he was going to bless Abraham and his people and that through Abraham's people, the whole world was going to be blessed. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, that Jesus, uh, a descendant of Abraham, would now come and open up God's blessing and salvation to the whole world. That's what's going on in this moment. This is why it's for the whole world. that The blessing of knowing God was now to spill out from Israel and into the whole planet, to all kinds of people. The news is first shared with shepherds of all people. 
Now, you'd probably be forgiven for thinking that the news should probably go to the religious guys who had spent their whole lives searching the Bible for these promises and trying to work out when on earth this Messiah was going to come. They had been spending their whole time trying to work out, where's it going to be? What's he going to look like? But instead, the news goes to the shepherds, first of all. The shepherds were seen as outsiders. They lived by themselves outside of the town. They were sleeping in the open and with animals all the time. These were tough guys and it was tough work. They look very nice in our nativity scenes. We've got a happy land nativity scene at our house and the shepherd looks really cute. He doesn't look at all bothered about the fact that he's just slept in a field. He looks very happy. And it's, listen, we're just far removed from this because in first century Israel, shepherds were looked down upon. It was once a a really highly esteemed profession. Abraham was a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. These These were heroes of the faith. And yet by this point, historians tell us, that shepherding was looked down upon. People saw shepherds as, as weird. They saw them as, as loners. Shepherds were mistrusted. They were not allowed to testify in court. Think about that for a minute. Their testimony wasn't even accepted in court. No one believed what they said. People wouldn't buy stuff from shepherds because they would fear that they would just stolen it in the first place. So they were going to end up getting in trouble. It'd be like buying stuff from Del Boy. That's kind of what's going on here. If you were the guy to be picked last when the football teams were picked at school, then you know how the shepherds feel. They're they're at the bottom of the pile, as it were. They couldn't make it to temple for sacrifices and feasts because they couldn't abandon their flock for that long. So they weren't able to maintain religious devotion as the rest of God's people did. That made it very difficult for them. Maybe you feel like people distrust you. Maybe you feel like you're squeezed to the edges of society. Maybe you feel like people look down on you with disdain. Maybe you feel like, I don't fit in here. I feel far removed from the community. Well, this is the shepherd's experience. Maybe you are even listening to this online on the podcast and you're thinking, I can't get to church because of illness or I can't get to church because of my work or I just can't go there. I can't be amongst those people. They, they look down on me with such disapproval. Listen, who does God send the messenger angel to? He sends the angel to the shepherds. This shows us a lot about God's priorities. This shows us a lot about God's kingdom. He came in a lowly way. He comes to the lowly. He came to the faithless, joyless, and defeated, not to the faithful, joyful, and triumphant types. If your life isn't Instagrammable, then he came for you. He came for you. You're the sort of person that he came for. He came to establish a kingdom where the last truly would be first. And even in his birth, we see that it is a kingdom where the proud and the strong would be brought low and the lowly would be raised up. This Emperor Augustus was taking this sentence to try and consolidate his power, to try and work out how many people do I have in my empire so he could better control them, so he could better advance his own kingdom. But even in doing that, God's working behind the scenes to orchestrate it so that Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem at just the right time. So God's establishing a whole other kingdom just when Augustus is trying to establish his kingdom. This is an upside down kingdom where it's for life's losers and outcasts. The kind of upside down kingdom where a teenage girl from a poor town in the middle of nowhere, for the people who even had heard of Nazareth, they looked down on it with disdain. This is the kind of 
kingdom where this teenage girl from that middle of nowhere place could be honoured with carrying deity in her womb. This was a boy born to be king of a kingdom that would be established from this point onwards, a kingdom that would go on advancing. We hear at Christmas time, don't we, the famous verses that he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, and so on and so on, and that the government will be on his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is the moment where his kingdom began to be established, and of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. And he had come, as the angel says, to be saviour, Messiah and Lord. He'd come to be a saviour. If you've ever wronged God in any way, then you need a saviour. You need a saviour. And you might think, have I ever wronged God? Well, have you ever done wrong by your own standards? And I think the answer for all of us would be yes. God's standards are way higher than yours. We all need a saviour. I'm looking out upon a lot of young people who might think, well, I haven't really done much in my life. I'm, I'm, I've kind of lived a good life. Listen, we've all tried to go our own way. We've all tried to establish ourselves as God in some way. Try to advance our own kingdom. Try to get people to like us and to, uh, to, to bow down to us in some way. We've all wronged God and we need a saviour because God is sinless. He's perfect. He's holy. And, and we can't know him and have relationship with him without our wrongdoing having been decisively dealt with. He is holy. And the problem that we have is that we cannot decisively deal with our wrongdoing by ourselves. We cannot deal with it by ourselves. We cannot decisively deal with our sin by ourselves. And so therefore we're heading for eternity without God. We're heading for hell. We're heading for hell unless we know our sin having been decisively dealt with. Maybe you're already experiencing something of that hell without God now. Well, let me tell you, it's only going to get worse. Jesus came to decisively deal with our sin on the cross. He came, he, he, he grew up, he lived the perfect life, and he died in our place as a substitute for us on the cross, and he rose again. This was not the first time that he'd be wrapped in strips of cloth. We read that he was laid in a tomb, having died a miserable death on the cross and wrapped in strips of cloth. He came to save us from life without God now and in eternity. And the great news is it's a free gift. We don't have to somehow work our way to achieve it. We don't have to say a certain amount of Hail Marys or go to church a certain amount of times or you know try and... Um, undo the bad things that we've done. We just have to accept this free gift. I reconnected with a dear friend of mine this week who we've kind of lost touch over the last few years and he came on an alpha course and uh, from a culture whereby it's all about honor and uh, dealing with your mess by yourself. And we reconnected this week and we're going to catch up and he just couldn't get over the message of Christianity that it's a free gift. He said, I feel like I have to deal with my mess myself. I feel like I have to do something about this. Why should someone else take the punishment for the wrongdoing that I've committed? This is the message of Christianity. It's a free gift. He's the saviour. We cannot be our own saviour. He's the Messiah. He came to fulfil the hopes of the people of Israel. They had been long promised a Messiah. 
For many, many years, they were expecting a special one. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed one, special one, someone uh, anointed by God, given power by God for special purposes. And there had been anointed leaders within uh, the nation of Israel over the years. There was David, who was a mighty king and did amazing things, and yet he was imperfect. And ultimately, his king kingdom crumbled because... Um, in the nation of Israel ended up being divided and people were brought into all kinds of slavery and so on. He was anointed, but he wasn't the one. There was Aaron who was an anointed priest. He would go before God on behalf of the people to make sacrifice for their sin. And yet Aaron and all of those priests that came after him, their job was never done. There was never one sacrifice that would decisively deal with sin once and for all time. And then there was anointed prophets like Elijah who would do incredible things in God's power who would say, speak incredible truths from God to the people, and yet even his legacy didn't last because the people ignored him or didn't listen or forgot and wandered away. And so they're expecting a Messiah that's going to come and make all things right. There was a huge sense of anticipation about this Messiah. I wonder if you've had hopes in your heart of political leaders recently. I sat down with my children over breakfast on Thursday and explain to them that mummy and daddy are going to vote today and um, explain to them that there might be a, a different prime minister at the end of the day. And we talked about uh, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swinson. And they said, hey, dad, when can we vote? I said, in about 10 or 11 years time, you can vote. And they said, who should we vote for? Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn or Joe Swinson? I said, hopefully none of them will be on the options <laughs> when, by the time you come around to vote. But I wonder if you've pinned your hopes in a political leader this week. We must pray for our leaders. We must not disconnect from politics. Let's not just say, oh, it's below us. No, we, we pray for our leaders, but we don't put our hopes in them as if they're going to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. We don't put our hope in political systems or policies or leaders. This Messiah has truly come to herald a golden age. That's what the prophecies were hinting at, and he did, but probably not in the way that the people were expecting they had hoped that this Messiah would come and kick butt like Sansom did. They had hoped that he would be like Sansom, but on Holy Spirit steroids. Basically coming to, his three-point plan would be to destroy the Romans, establish his throne, and make Israel great again. That's kind of what they were after in their Messiah. But actually, he ushered in another type of golden age. He ushered in an age of salvation by coming to die for his enemies. He came to die for his enemies. This is an upside-down kingdom. He's God, he's holy, which means he does things that we would never do, like dying for his enemies. Jesus is the answer to our hopes. He is the longing of our hearts. You might think you need something else. You might think, I don't need that. I need a better job. I need a relationship. I need to have children that respect me and listen to me. I need these things. What you ultimately need is a Messiah who really will fulfill your hopes. The Israelites, many of them thought they needed something else. They thought they needed a king to make them great again. But what they got was actually what they really needed. They got a prophet who would demonstrate God's power and who would speak God's wisdom to the world. They got a priest to not only go between God and man on their behalf, but who would actually be the sacrifice himself. And they got a king who rules justly. 
They've got a king who is perfect in all of his ways, a king who will never leave their side, a master, a lord. That's what lord means. He's not a cuddly baby. He's the lord of all. He's the Lord of all, as we've sung this morning. He's the one we obey. He's the one we bow before. What he says goes. So this is the most significant moment in all human history at this point. The promised one is here. He's Savior. He's Messiah. He's Lord of all. And what do these shepherds do? After having seen Jesus, they go and tell everyone They are shepherds. These are not the people you would pick to be natural salespeople for your franchise. You you wouldn't look at them and say, they are going to be the greatest advertisement for this good news that we want to export to the world. And yet they are the first evangelists. They're the people who go through the streets telling everyone what they've seen. And yet they would have been least equipped for the questions that they would have been met with. So you're telling me that the Messiah has been born, but yet only a few people know about it. We don't, he's here on the earth and he's not yet come to destroy the road. What's going on? Where's God been for the last 400 years, shepherds? What's, what, why suddenly now? Who were his parents? Do we know them? There would have been so many questions coming to them and they would have been least equipped to answer them. I don't know about you, but I feel sometimes like the least equipped to answer questions. That's why it's sometimes good just to listen and hear people out on what they think. Because we're not going to be able to ultimately answer every question that people throw at us. We might think we're least equipped. Sometimes we feel least equipped to even answer the question, what did you get up to this weekend? And we feel unable to even say, I went to church. We feel ill-equipped for the questions that might come to us. And yet, simply the shepherd's had just been astounded by Jesus. They had just seen Jesus. They just beheld Jesus. And that was enough. They had been wowed by Jesus. And their enthusiasm, their passion, their zeal, their amazement, it led others to be astonished as a result. This is the the word we see here. They were astonished. Everyone that saw the shepherds was astonished. Their, Their jaws were ajar. They were like, what is going on? You've seen something that I need to see. Just think about the people who you would think, if I had to sell something in this town, these would be the last people that I would ask to go and sell it. It might be people groups in the town. It might be um, people of a particular neighborhood, whatever it might be. You just think about it. If they came to your door, you would hide. You'd hide behind the sofa and pretend you weren't in. This is exactly what it was for the shepherds. No one wanted to hear from them. They didn't have incredible wisdom or amazing answers, yet they had just spent time beholding Jesus. I wonder how many people are astonished at our lives. I wonder how many people look at us with astonishment. I want people to look at my life and be astonished, not because of my amazing wisdom or great answers or articulate responses, but because I've simply beheld Jesus That's how we change, friends. We see in 2 Corinthians 3, it's as we behold Jesus, as we we focus our hearts and minds on who he is, we're changed from one degree of glory to another. Robert Murray McShane lived a couple of hundred years ago. He said this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, 
such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. It's old language, but it's still very true. As we behold Jesus, as we focus our minds and hearts on him, not on ourselves, Listen, a massive problem for my generation, and many of you are in my generation, is that we're doing this. We're looking in on ourselves. And it will lead to people being astonished. They'll simply be astonished at how depressed we are. We're just looking at ourselves. God is calling us to focus our hearts and our minds on the excellencies of Jesus. Let our souls be filled with the sweetness and excellency of Jesus. Be inward facing and you will be miserable. Be Jesus focused and people will be astonished. People will be astounded. So these shepherds, they return to work, they've got mouths to feed and yet they're forever changed by this glimpse of Jesus. The shepherds, so used to lambing season, have now encountered the one who would be the lamb of God. They've encountered the one who would be the sacrifice for our sins, who would come and take away our sins by dying in our place. The Lamb of God who would bring us peace with God. That's what the angels declare, peace, peace. I wonder if you've got peace with God. I wonder if you've got peace with God. You either have or you haven't. There's no middle ground. The Bible says because of our sin, we are enemies of God. And when our sin gets decisively dealt with, we get brought into God's family. He adopts us as his own. We're no longer enemies of God. We're sons and daughters of God. You're either in one of either camp. You're either at peace with God or you're not. Do you know peace with God? Do you know your sins forgiven or not? You can know peace with God today. You can know peace with God today by simply saying, I cannot be my own saviour. I cannot be my own messiah. All the things I've searched for, all the things I've longed for, all the things I've run after, they've proven to be rubbish messiahs. Jesus, you are the one. We can know our sins forgiven, decisively dealt with for all time. You can know peace now. You don't need to wait any longer. Please look beyond the messenger, just as the people who heard the angels, rather the shepherds, just as the people who heard the shepherds had to kind of look beyond the person in front of them and look to the message. Can I appeal to you, look beyond the messenger and look to the message. Do you have peace with God? You might have been thinking, I'm waiting until I've seen the perfect Christian who really does do what they're supposed to do, and then I will believe. You're going to be searching your whole life. Maybe you're thinking, I've got, to, I've got to pick all the holes in it that I can because I'm seeing imperfect messengers wherever I go. Look beyond the messenger and look to the message. Wherever you are putting your hope in in this life, it will fail you. Politics will fail you. 
Some of you have known that this week. Some of you, as we heard, are rejoicing. Some are saying, oh man, what's going on? Success, the perfect family, popularity, they're all fine and good things. But they will eventually prove to be inadequate messiahs. They will not fulfill, they will not satisfy, they will let you down. I want to save you the bother of spending years of your life searching for hope in the wrong things. Let me appeal to you, look to the lowly things. Don't look to the, the high up things that the world says you've got to have, a big bank balance, a nice car, a nice house, good holidays every year, a perfect family, the perfect Christmas where everyone's smiling and everyone's enjoying the ham in the background or whatever it might be. Don't look to the high things, look to the low things. Look to, look to this crowded house with this baby in a manger. Look to the cross where Jesus dying in, a, in apparent defeat. Look to the cross, look to the tomb on the Sunday that was empty. Look to these things that are lowly and unimpressive. That is where you'll find hope. That's where you'll find life. That's where you'll find forgiveness. That's where you'll find peace with God. That's where you'll find fulfillment. Friends, look to the lowly things. I want to just pray right now when, whilst we're staying seated. And I want to pray for us as a family, as a church, but I also want to lead us in a prayer. If you know, I don't have peace with God, you're either you do or you don't. If you don't have peace with God, I want to lead you in a prayer. I'd love you to pray in your heart with me. So I'm just going to lead us in a prayer now. Let's close our eyes. God, I know that I have been looking to all kinds of things to fulfill my hopes and deepest longings. I've looked to the places that the world told me I should look. And I now realize I've been looking in the wrong places. God, I want to receive this free gift of salvation. I want to know Jesus as my Savior. I want to know peace with God. I want to know this adoption as a son or a daughter in your family. And so I give over all of my wrongdoing, wrong thinking, wrong speaking. And I say, I'm sorry, Lord. And I receive in its place your forgiveness and your mercy. And I say, I want to live for you now all the days of my life. Just want to give you that moment now just to say that in your heart. I want to just pray for us as a church family now. Let's just again, just, just get before God. Lord, we want to be those that this Christmas time focus on the lowly place of the manger, the lowly place of the cross, the empty tomb. We want to celebrate you, Lord, this Christmas. We want to celebrate many, many good things that you've given us. Friends, family, food. We want to celebrate those things, Lord, but we ultimately want you to be treasured above it all. We want to so focus our hearts on your excellencies that those we encounter will be astonished. We don't want to focus our hearts and minds on any other things, Lord, that we think will ultimately satisfy. We want to focus our hearts and minds on you. We want to behold you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content. But-
please do not edit the content in any way.